And as we will learn in this lesson this morning, God will also have two very special human witnesses who will testify of Christ and his saving grace to the nation of Israel. And that's what we're going to look at in the first half of our lesson this morning on chapter 11, verses 1 to 14, which I have subtitled, Witnesses Testify on Earth. Furthermore, God will also have his church as his witness. And the church is going to be represented once again by the 24 elders in heaven. They will testify of the Lord's power and of his future victories. And that's what we're going to look at, Lord willing, we have time, in the second half of this lesson, verses 15 to 19, which I have subtitled, Worshipful Testimony in Heaven. So the title for our lesson this morning is Testimony Time. Let the redeemed of the Lord... But say so. It's testimony time. We'll be looking at witnesses testifying on earth and then worshipful testimony in heaven. Now, before we begin to learn about the two mighty witnesses and discuss their possible identity, a lot of controversy about who these two guys are, and discuss what they do and all about their spectacular ministry from beginning to end, We need to discuss some further instructions which were given to John by the mighty angel of chapter 10, who is still on the scene. This mighty angel is still here in chapter 11. After devouring that little scroll, which he was told to eat by the mighty angel, John was then told, remember that he must, this was in verse 11 of chapter 10, that he must continue to prophesy by writing the remainder of everything that he would yet hear and see about the judgments and events preceding and then following the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, the old apostle John is given another set of instructions. First of all, he was told to eat the little book, which he did. Then he's told to continue prophesying everything he'd see. And now he's given yet another set of instructions. He's told here in these two verses to measure the temple. So we're going to consider, first of all, in this section about witnesses testifying on earth, we're going to look at the measured temple, and then we will talk about the mighty two, the mighty two witnesses. So let's look at verses 1 and 2, the measured temple. John says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel, that's of course the mighty angel from chapter 10, the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now in these verses... Uh, John states that he was given a reed like unto a rod. And this was very probably a 10-foot reed, which was commonly used in biblical days as a measuring instrument. It grew in the Jordan Valley, and it was very lightweight and flexible, and yet extremely straight, so it worked very well as a measuring stick. Now, with this reed, John was to measure the temple of God inside the holy place. You know, not the courtyard, but the holy place. The altar, which he was instructed to measure here in verse 1, would have to be the golden altar of incense, which stood right before the veil. It stood before the holy of holies. 
It couldn't be the brazen sacrificial altar. Why? Because that altar was outside in the temple courtyard. And so he and he was not told to measure the courtyard. So the, the altar would have been the altar of incense, the golden altar. Remember the altar where the prayers of the saints rise up before God. Furthermore, John was to then measure those who worshipped in the temple. Now, what does all of this measuring symbolize? What does it mean? Are there precedents, we should ask? Are there precedents to this in the Bible to which we can go for some assistance in determining the significance of the angel's instructions here? Well, in fact, there are two prior occasions in the scripture which tell us about men being instructed, divinely instructed, to do some measuring for God. I'm not going to give you both cases. One of them you can read about in your notes because uh, that's not the one that applies here. Ezekiel saw a man measuring. But we're not going to talk about that one. We're going to talk about the situation in Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah, like Ezekiel, beheld a man measuring the city of Jerusalem. God was preparing to judge at that time Jerusalem. So the man had been instructed to map out and to measure the city somewhat somewhat like a general, you know, would do if he was going to uh, invade a city or a country. What would he do? First of all, he'd get a map of the country or the city. He'd map it out. He'd uh, measure the cities to see how big it was. He'd measure the walls, you know, so to speak. Try to determine how big the walls were, how big the the, uh, towers were. He'd find out how many people lived in the city and how big they were, how strong they, you know, what he could find out about their military capacity. So the measuring in Zechariah was a symbolic picture of God about to judge the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the measuring of the temple that John is instructed to do here in Revelation chapter 11 could be symbolic. Uh, It could be a symbolic picture of God about to judge the people who were worshiping in the temple during the tribulation period, those who will be worshiping in the tribulation temple. Now, there are several passages in the Bible which let us know that there will be a temple in operation during the tribulation. You know, there is no temple in Jerusalem today, right? There isn't. There hasn't been one since 70 A.D. But we know from the scripture there will be a temple during the tribulation. How do we know this? Well, for one reason, we know from Daniel 9, 27, where it states that the prince that shall come, and that is a reference to the Antichrist, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, he will make it desolate. And then the Lord Jesus himself, when he was telling his men about the signs which would precede his second coming in the Olivet Discourse, referred to the future time when the Antichrist would desecrate the temple. And he called this desecration of the temple what? The abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, Verses 1 to 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will defy God by presenting himself as God in the temple of God. You can read that in verse 4. Now, in order for the Antichrist to fulfill these scriptures that I just gave to you, 
there must be a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation, right? He can't do these things if there isn't a temple there. He can't cause the sacrifices to cease and he can't set himself up if there is no temple in which to do those things. So this is what we call the tribulation temple. And this is the only one which can qualify for the temple which, is, which John is instructed to measure. Why is that? Well, because the other temples were gone. Um, there was Solomon's temple. That was destroyed when? No, Solomon's temple was destroyed when King Nebuchadnezzar took the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity. And then when they returned, they rebuilt a temple, and it was called Zerubbabel's temple. And it was literally taken apart and rebuilt from scratch by Herod about 20 years before Christ was born. And so Herod's temple was the one the Lord himself cleansed on two different occasions and the one that he visited during his earthly ministry. But Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And ever since, there has not been a temple in Israel. Uh, there will be a tribulation temple, and then there will be a millennial temple. That will be the perfect temple in the millennium. So altogether, there will be five temples. Now, ever since the Jews have begun returning to the land of Israel in this century, there has been talk about the rebuilding of their temple. In fact, the materials for temple worship have been made. They're all ready to go. Everything has been made. All the furniture, all the materials that they need have been made in the precise detail given in the Old Testament. The clothing for the priests has all been made. It's ready to go. And those willing men who are known to have come from the tribe of Levi, based upon their last names, they have been educated and they have been trained in the minute details of the Old Testament worship and in the rituals and in the ceremonies of the whole sacrificial system. Everything, including now a perfectly unblemished red heifer, whose ashes are necessary, most Jews think, or at least the Orthodox Jews think, that the ashes of a perfectly unblemished red heifer are absolutely necessary for the reinstating of the priesthood. And they do get that from the scripture. I think it's in number somewhere. Uh, they have found one of these cows. As a matter of fact, he was raised by an American, I believe an American farmer from Mississippi. I may be wrong. It's either Mississippi or Alabama has been able to raise a perfectly unblemished, I mean, that means with not one white hair on his whole body, not one little wart, nothing. And he's made one. He's, he's been able to, what do you call the word? Grow one that's not grown. <laughs> Produce. <laughs> he has them ready. Anyway, so everything is set for the reestablishment of the temple and for temple worship and the priesthood. The whole thing is ready. And some even claim to know where the Ark of the Covenant has been hidden all of these many centuries. So all that stands in the way of the building of a Jewish temple today is the very significant fact that the one piece of ground on which the Jews want to build their temple I mean, zealously desire to build their temple, is occupied by the third most holy shrine in the Muslim world, after Mecca and Medina. And that is the Mosque of Omar, also known as the Dome of the Rock. 
because it is built right over Mount Moriah, which is the place to uh, place considered to be the spot where Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God. Now, the Dome of the Rock. How many of you have ever seen it? It, it is beautiful. It's, you know the whole. It is, and you can see it for miles coming into Jerusalem because it's got a gold dome on it. I'll show some pictures in a minute. It was built in 691 A.D. by Abdal. Malik, and he built it in an attempt to attract some of the sacred revenue from pilgrims. You know, the Muslim pilgrims have to make one trip in a lifetime to one of the holy shrines of Islam, you know, to Mecca, Medina, and he was trying to get them to also come now to the Dome of the Rock on one of their pilgrimage because some of those Muslims will save their money for a lifetime just to be able to take this sacred pilgrimage. And so a lot of revenue comes in from these pilgrimages. And he was trying to get some of that money away from the Kaaba in Mecca. His attempt failed. And in fact, for all of the centuries that Jerusalem lay under complete Arab control, not one single Arab ruler or Islamic leader ever made a sacred pilgrimage journey to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. So then you might ask the question, well, why has the status of this mosque changed so much then in modern times? There's a picture of it there. Well, believe it or not, the status of the Mosque of Omar changed only in the 1920s and 1930s. And the man who brought about this change was Yasser Arafat's uncle, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who was at that time the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. In order to arouse Arab sentiment against the growing Jewish presence in Jerusalem and in order to justify to the Muslim world the location of the Dome of the Rock on the Jewish temple site... El Husseini fabricated the story that under the Dome of the Rock was the sacred site from which Muhammad allegedly ascended up into heaven. A fabrication. And yet, that tradition, which is only about 70, 75 years old, is now a firmly established fact in the mind of the Muslim. No one seems to question the fact that Jerusalem had never, ever been the scene of Islamic worship up until that time. Or the fact that Jerusalem, the city, the holy city, is never, ever mentioned even one time in the Koran, which is the holy book for today's one uh, billion Muslims. You know, when we just took a, a recent trip over to Europe, I could not believe how much... Islam is spreading in Europe. Our guide told us that it is the third religion in Germany after Lutheranism and Catholicism comes Islam. And everywhere in England we saw Islamic people and Muslims. It's, it's just really, really growing. And the, by the way, the words Palestine or Canaan don't even appear in the Koran. Those two words never appear in the Quran, and yet Islam teaches that this land belongs to the Arabs. 
and not to the Jews. Therefore, Jewish possession of Israel and above all, Jewish possession of Jerusalem are intolerable insults to the Muslim world. If you want to know more about the history of the Muslims and with the Jews and that whole situation, this is a book I would recommend you getting. I'm sure they have it over at the carpenter shop. It's in paperback. Very fascinating book. I, I read it last summer. It's called A Cup of Trump Trembling, and it's by David Hunt, if you want to write that down. Only by driving the Jews out of Palestine can Muslim and Arab honor be restored. And, of course, that is their one uh, driving sentiment at, at this time, is to drive the Jews out of Israel. And, of course, they've never even acknowledged that Israel exists. Now, for the Arabs to even hear the suggestion that God promised the land of Palestine to the Jews and that he is currently carrying out the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise to the Muslim, to the Arab, this is utter outrage and blasphemy. You know, it's interesting to me that although the Koran never mentions Jerusalem one time, the Holy Bible mentions it over 800 times. And we know, in fact, that God did promise the land of Israel to the Jews. Now, it is a fact that the Bible teaches that there will be a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. And therefore, many Bible students are speculating that this temple will be part of the peace agreement with Israel that the Antichrist will make. Perhaps he will promise them military protection from the Islamic world so that they can build their temple and then resume their sacrificial religious system of worship. It may be, I mean, some of us might be looking for the temple to be built, but we don't really need to because it may be erected very quickly after the church is raptured. Or, as some have suggested, it may be that the Antichrist will make it possible for the Jews to merely go into the Dome of the Rock and cleanse it as they had done when Zerubbabel's temple was desecrated by the Greco-Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. He desecrated it, remember, those of you that were with us in Daniel, by slaughtering a pig on the altar and then shoving the pig meat down the throats of the priests, and then he set up a statue of Jupiter, or Zeus, right there in the Holy of Holies. I mean, he desecrated the temple big time. And during the time of the Maccabees, the intertestamental era, the Jews went in and they cleansed Zerubbabel's temple so that they could use it again. And the commemoration of the cleansing of that temple is what they celebrate today with the holiday of Hanukkah. Did you know that? Hanukkah is a celebration when they cleanse their temple after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, perhaps the Mosque of Omar will be... There's a picture of that, by the way. Perhaps it will be destroyed by warfare or terrorism or a natural disaster which will be occurring during the early, the very early part of the tribulation period. You know, we've discussed all the things that will be going on during the tribulation. Well, maybe some of these things, like if there is nuclear war or some kind of warfare or an earthquake or whatever, maybe something will destroy the Mosque of Omar, making it possible for the Jews to then build on that spot. But even then, without the military protection of the Antichrist, 
the Muslim world would still rise in resistance, wouldn't they, if they saw the Jews about to build on that spot. And so it might be, as we mentioned in our last study, that the army of the 200 million, which comes from the east in the sixth trumpet judgment, it may be that that will be a combined Muslim army marching against Israel. So, at any rate, we have concluded that the temple, which John is instructed to measure, is the yet non-existent tribulation temple. It will be measured for judgment. And God is, once again, going to use the Gentiles to do his judging for him. Now, why, somebody might ask, would God judge a temple which had been reestablished, and it will be reestablished by the Orthodox Jews. They're the ones who are really fanatical about this. Most of the Jews don't care, but the Orthodox definitely do. Why would he judge a temple that was established in order to worship himself? Well, the reason for this is because the building of the temple and the reinstituting of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is a total rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an insult to the Lamb of God who has already offered one sacrifice forever. God himself, remember, tore the veil in the holy place and he exposed the ark of the covenant inside the holy of holies at the time of his son's uh, the completion of his son's sacrificial work on the cross and why did god do this he did so in order to demonstrate to israel this is one of his reasons to demonstrate to israel the end of that whole sacrificial system all of the old testament sacrifices were merely pictures or types of Christ. And with his completed work, no more pictures are necessary, are they? No more types. Therefore, the rebuilding of the temple for the purpose of reinstating the whole Old Testament sacrificial system is a rejection of Christ. So both the temple and those who will be worshiping in the temple at that time, you know, they will be bringing their sacrifices just like they did back in the old days. They'll be bringing their sacrifices to the temple. They will be blaspheming Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, and therefore they will be measured for judgment. Now, in verse 2, John was told to leave out the courtyard around the temple and to not measure it. And the reason for this, according to the mighty angel who's speaking here, is that this outer courtyard is given to who? It's given to the Gentiles who will be allowed by God to tread the holy city, Jerusalem, underfoot for a period of 42 months, which, if you figure it out, the Jews had months months of 30 days. This equals three and a half years. God will allow the Gentiles to complete the final purification of his people, the Jews. These 42 months will be the final three and a half years of the time known as the Great Tribulation and also the time which is called the Times of the Gentiles. This has been, the Times of the Gentiles has been a very, very long period of time. Who remembers when it began? It began when King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Gentile, carried off the Jews into um, 
right into Babylon in captivity. That was the beginning of what the Lord himself called the times of the Gentiles. Well, ever since those days of King Nebuchadnezzar, Israel has indeed been under the dominion or the oppression of one Gentile nation or another. And this situation will not end until the Lord himself returns at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. That will be the end of the time of the Gentiles. Now, even today, well, you, you might say, well, Israel's in the land today. They're not under Gentile dominion. Well, they certainly are. They're under deep Gentile oppression. They don't have total freedom from Gentiles. Not only are the Arabs, if you listen to the news, managing to gain more and more and more Israeli land, even though they don't intend on keeping any of their promises, they're getting more land away from the Jews. But Israel lives with the constant threat of war by her antagonistic neighbors. And she does not, as we have been discussing, even have access to her most holy site, uh, Mount Moriah. After the Antichrist, in the middle of the tribulation, turns on Israel, breaks his agreement with her, and then abominates her temple, Jerusalem will be tread underfoot, that's heavy treading, by the Gentiles for a period of 42 months, which is those last three and a half years. The beast, who is the Antichrist, will have moved his troops into Jerusalem, presumably under the terms of his covenant promise of protection against her enemies. You know, perhaps the Muslims are coming, so he moves his troops into Jerusalem. But at this time, he will reveal his true purpose when he ends the sacrifices that will be going on in the temple and then sets himself up to be worshipped as God. And then he will, of course, begin his satanic plan to rule the entire world and to bring the whole world into a single political, religious, economic, and cultural unity. So, suddenly then, in verse 3, the mighty angel changes the subject. And now he begins to speak about two miraculous witnesses. So let's look at them, verses 3 to 14. John says, well, John doesn't say this is actually still the mighty angel speaking here. He says, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, 
the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Well, the first thing that I want to mention in these verses here is that the speaker in verse 3, who is still the mighty angel, if you doubt me, go back and look at verse 1 and see who keeps right on talking. It is the mighty angel. He said that he would give his power to his two witnesses. Now, the fact that this angel states that he is the one who gives the power to these miracle-performing prophets of God and that they are actually his witnesses... This confirms to me who this mighty angel is, because I just can't, um, I can't imagine a regular angel, or even a very strong angel, presuming to make such a statement. Can you? That he would give his power to his witnesses. Oh, I really, when I saw this this week, I should have seen it last week, but I didn't get to chapter 11, I was studying chapter 10, but when I saw it this week, I said, well, that pretty much answers it for me, that the mighty angel must be the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus proceeded to tell John about the two divinely empowered witnesses that he would have in Israel to be a testimony to the Jewish people for 1,260 days. And that happens to be equal to 42 months or what? Exactly three and a half years. Now, although Bible expositors do differ on which three and a half years of the tribulation period these witnesses will be testifying to Israel. It's amazing. About half of my commentary said that they'd be witnessing in the first three and a half years, and the other half said they would be witnessing in the second three and a half years. So it got very confusing. But it would seem to me that it would be the first three and a half years, and I'll give you my reasons. Otherwise, all right, let's say they were prophesying during the last three and a half years which I don't think so. But that would um, make them be killed because they're killed at the end of the three and a half years. They would be killed and then resurrected from the dead at the very same time that the Battle of Armageddon would be taking place. And it's doubtful, at least from my thinking, that the whole world would be watching the bodies, the dead bodies of these two witnesses lying in the street of Jerusalem, and that the whole world would then be celebrating their deaths with the exchange of gifts, which is what they do, according to verse 10, if the world at that time was engaged in the largest war ever fought in human history, World War III, unless we have another world war before that, but I can't imagine that we will, because I think we'd annihilate ourselves if we did. So I think this is going to be World War III, the Battle of Armageddon. I can't imagine them, you know, watching the two witnesses' bodies lying there when all the troops of the world are meeting together for the Battle of Armageddon. Besides that, the um, various plagues which will be falling on the world in the bold judgments which pour out on the world in the last three and a half years wouldn't leave much room for rejoicing over anything. 
I mean, these judgments are really, really bad, and they affect people directly, you know, with boils and problems. And, and I don't think people are going to be rejoicing when they're suffering from these bold judgments, even if it is the death of these two fire-breathing terrorists, the two mighty witnesses. I don't think they'd even have time, take time out to celebrate their death if we're talking about them ministering in Israel during the last three and a half years. This is why I think that they do have their ministry in the first three and a half years is because it would put their deaths by the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation, right? So that makes sense to me. We know that the Antichrist will be in Jerusalem, and that's where these two witnesses have their ministry, primarily in Jerusalem. And the Antichrist will be in Jerusalem in the middle of the tribulation because this is when he will stop the worship in the temple. And this is when he will begin to center all worship on himself. His killing at that point in time of these two much-feared and much-hated witnesses would bring him a great deal of popularity worldwide. And many people would think that because he was finally able to kill these two witnesses who nobody else was able to kill. It tells us here that every, a lot of people tried to kill him, but nobody could. But here comes the Antichrist, and he is successful in killing these two prophets. So they will think, the world will think, that truly this fella is the Christ. He is the real Christ. However, when many of the Jewish people not only see the two witnesses rise from the dead and then ascend up into heaven, and then the Jewish people see this Antichrist fella go into their temple and desecrate it and set himself up as God to be worshipped. And you know the Jewish people will not worship a man. (laughs) No way. Then the Jewish people will know that they have been terribly, terribly deceived. And they will realize that the message of these two prophets was the true message. And they will embrace their message about Christ and give glory to the God of heaven, as it tells us in verse 13. Now these witnesses, and the word for witness comes from the Greek word for martyr, and that's exactly what they become. They are dressed in what kind of clothing? The latest styling? No. They're dressed in sackcloth. And that's not really a very good picture of sackcloth. I'll show you another one later on. But uh, this does identify them. The fact that they're dressed in sackcloth identifies them as being prophets of doom. Sackcloth symbolizes personal suffering and sacrifice as well as doom and judgment. Now these will be special men of God who will tell the Jewish people and anyone else who will listen to repent for the kingdom is at hand and it truly will be at hand and they will tell the people that god is warning them to turn to his son for forgiveness and for salvation they will say as the psalmist said kiss the son lest he be angry and he will they will tell the jewish people that god has been sending these warning judgments you know they're warning judgments um, to get right with god to repent And that if they don't, worse and worse judgments are going to be falling. Now, there has been a great deal of speculation as to the identity of these two witnesses. And later on in this lesson, we're going to talk about the reason why 
for many, many years, numerous Bible expositors taught that they were not really individual men, that they weren't human people. I mean, humans are people, but they weren't humans. But rather that they represented two theological ideas, such as, I've got some of them up here. They'd say, well, they're not really two men, but they represent law and grace, or they represent the law and the prophets, or they represent, let's say, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason, etc., the reason for why they tried to avoid taking these two as being men, two literal prophets of God, that reason no longer exists. So it is much more, and I'll talk about what that reason is later. But So it's much more reasonable to take the scripture literally and to understand them as being two literal men. Now, some have thought that they were perhaps angels. But since angels do not die, and these two men of God die, that eliminates that little idea right on the spot, doesn't it? They cannot be angels. So then, who are they? Well, there have been numerous suggestions. Many really far-out suggestions and some that are pretty reasonable. Some of the most reasonable have been that they are Elijah and Moses. That's the most popular view. Or Elijah and Enoch. That's probably the second most popular view. Or Elijah and John the Baptist. Now, you notice every one of those choices has Elijah, right? And there is scriptural support for one of the two witnesses being Elijah. And that scripture... Scriptural support is found in Malachi 4, 5, which predicted that Elijah would come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So that's why a lot of people say one of these fellows is Elijah. Well, that prophecy was partially fulfilled by the coming of John the Baptist, according to the Lord himself. But not completely, because the Baptist only came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. A completely literal fulfillment of Malachi 4-5 would seem to necessitate the return of Elijah himself prior to the return of the Lord. Furthermore, the miraculous use of fire in the Old Testament was limited to Elijah. He's the only one who miraculously handled fire. Remember when he called down fire from heaven to consume the altar which he had built to demonstrate who the true God was back in 2 Kings 18. And also, Elijah withheld rain for three years. And both of these things, the handling of fire and the withholding of rain, are included in the miraculous powers of these two witnesses. That John the Baptist is one of these, and this is more like real sackcloth there, that John the Baptist is one of these two witnesses. But we don't really ever find that he... uh, Well, we don't find that he ever demonstrated the power of Elijah. John the Baptist never performed miracles like Elijah did. And he himself, of course, admitted that he was not Elijah. But he did wear sackcloth, didn't he? Uh, That's a positive. He did wear sackcloth. Um, And he was, of course, a type of Elijah. Now, a big problem with John the Baptist is that he died. John the Baptist had his head removed. You all remember that. So if he returns to the earth as one of the two witnesses, he's going to die again because we just read that these two witnesses will be killed by the Antichrist. However, the scripture state, the scripture on the other hand states that it is appointed unto men 
wants to die, right? Hebrews 9.27. Yet, on the other hand, now I'm going back and forth, giving you pros and cons and getting you all confused. On the other hand, that is a general rule. It is appointed unto men once to die. That's a general rule. And we know that there have been exceptions to it. People such as the Shunammite's son, and Jairus' daughter, and the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary. Those people all had to die twice physically. So there are exceptions to the little statement. It is appointed unto men once to die. And then also there will be a whole generation of church believers who will never die. So you can't say it's appointed unto men once to die because... They won't die. They will be immediately translated to heaven. Therefore, we cannot dogmatically say that John the Baptist will not be one of these two witnesses. Now, the second most popular person suggested for one of the witnesses besides Elijah is who? Moses. Moses. Because he manifested power to bring plagues on the earth and to turn water into blood. And that's exactly what these two witnesses will do. Many will think, many think that the two witnesses will be Moses and Elijah because together they represent the entire Old Testament to the Jewish people. You see, Moses represents the law and Elijah, who is the outstanding prophet of the Old Testament, he represents the prophets. So that kind of sounds good, doesn't it? That makes sense. Again, however, if a person takes Hebrews 9.27 as meaning that no man can ever die twice, then Moses is eliminated because Moses did die. We know that because uh, in Jude, it tells us about the fight that Satan had with Michael over Moses' body. But again, you know, that's a general rule, so it could be Moses. The death issue doesn't affect Elijah. You know that, right? Because Elijah never died. How did Elijah go to heaven? In a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire. So that's why Elijah is the number one choice for most people. Because he never died and he also performed the same miracles that we see these um, prophets, these uh, witnesses performing. And plus, it does say that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah would return. So he is the number one um, vote for most people. Now, because of the death only once issue, many others have stated that the two prophets are Elijah and Enoch. There you go, Enoch. Because Enoch is the only other Old Testament prophet besides Elijah who never died. However, a very big problem with Enoch being one of the two witnesses is that he was a Gentile. Did you know that? (laughs) He lived hundreds of years before Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jews. Enoch was a Gentile, and therefore he was not associated with the Jewish people or with Israel in any way whatsoever. And it really is um, most definitely believed that these two witnesses will be Jewish people testifying to the Jewish people. Besides, um, the purpose of Enoch's translation to heaven, you know, Enoch was, he was and then he wasn't, (laughs) because he was just translated. His body just instantly was in heaven, like like at the rapture. Well, the reason he was translated to heaven, according to Hebrews 11.5, was that he should not see death. 
That was the reason. He, he walked with God so closely that God said he should not see death. Well, it would negate that scriptural reason for his translation if he was to return to earth and see death after all, right? Now, just because neither Elijah nor Enoch never died is not sufficient evidence to make them the two witnesses. Because by this time, when the two witnesses will be on earth during the tribulation, there will be a whole generation of people who will not have died. And these people would be both Jews and Gentiles. And that, of course, will be those living at the time of the rapture. Now, another real possibility... is that these two witnesses will be two yet unknown men, men to whom we have never been introduced in the scripture because they will not live until the last days. Perhaps they're alive today, but we just don't know who they are. The best thing for us to realize is that God does not include the names of these two witnesses because we don't really need to know. One day, we will know their names. The whole world will know their names. But until then, all we need to know is that they will be two very godly, saved men who are called by God to specifically testify of Christ and verify their message about Christ with their miracles um, to the Jewish people in Israel. And they will carry out their God-given assignment faithfully. And for this, they are to be commended. They will do it their job faithfully until they are called upon to give their own lives for what they believe in. Now, the reference in Revelation 11.4 to these two men being the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. The olive oil from the olive trees in Zechariah's image are what provided the two candlesticks or the two lampstands with fuel in order to give light. You know, they had to have fuel so that they could give off light. The two witnesses for God back in the days of Zechariah were the high priest Joshua and the governor Zerubbabel. Those were the two witnesses. They were, the, they were God's light to the nation back in Zechariah's day. They were God's light bearers. You know, a candlestick bears the light. And they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is represented by the olive oil. Now, the mighty angel was informing John that just as Joshua and Zerubbabel were raised up to be candlesticks or witnesses for God in that day, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, so to these Two special witnesses of chapter 11 of Revelation will also perform their prophetic ministry in the power of God's Holy Spirit, and they will be his light in Israel at that time. Furthermore, as the divinely sealed 144,000 Jewish witnesses of chapter 7 were protected, remember, they were divinely protected from harm, also these two witnesses will be divinely protected from any harm until their work is complete. Did you know that you are immortal until your work for God is finished? No one can eliminate you. Nothing can happen to you until God is ready to take you home, until he is through with your ministry down here on earth. 
However, the 144,000, remember, they will be dispersed all over the world, and they will primarily be witnesses to the Gentiles of the world, whereas these two witnesses will spend their time in Israel and primarily probably in Jerusalem, the great city, as it says in verse 8. Although men will attempt to hurt them, many will attempt to hurt them because they are going to have plenty of enemies. That's evident by verse 5. Yet they will have the power to slay their enemies with fire. Can you imagine this? (laughs) Fire which will proceed out of their mouths. So anyone who seeks to harm them will just be given the blowtorch treatment and they'll be eliminated. Now these two very special men will also have the power to shut up the heavens from rain. And the result will be what? If there's no rain, there'll be a drought and that would cause a famine. And likewise, they will have the power, it tells us, to turn water into blood and to smite the world with plagues. So as far, just think if you're an unsaved person, as far as the unsaved world will be able to determine, it will be these two men who they will hold accountable for all the torment and all the suffering that they will have been enduring during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. If you go back and look at the seal judgments and some of the trumpet judgments, you'll see that they correspond with what's going on here. And this explains why these two fellows will be hated so much and feared so much. And probably the Antichrist will tell the world that these two men are indeed the, co- the cause for their troubles. So many will be seeking to eliminate them. However, in the process, they themselves will become the ones who are eliminated. Now, in God's time, however, when the work, as we said, of his two servants is complete, he will permit the beast, who is the Antichrist here, to kill these two mighty witnesses while they are preaching in the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem will be so wicked and so perverted at this time that John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak of her spiritually, do you notice in verse 8, as Sodom and Egypt. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit talking about Jerusalem. Just imagine her condition at this time. Well, she's been deceived. She, she thinks the Antichrist is the Christ, her deliverer, her Messiah. And, of course, Sodom and Egypt are symbolic terms which, in the Scripture, become synonyms for perversion and immorality and worldliness and materialism and also with the persecution of God's people. And then, so that nobody might wonder if he truly is speaking of Jerusalem, he goes ahead and tells us that this place is where our Lord was crucified. So we have no doubt that he is speaking about Jerusalem. This is where they will be prophesying when they are killed. Now, the Satan-empowered Antichrist will finally be allowed by God, God's orchestrating everything, they will be allowed to overcome the two prophets and kill them. And this will certainly further help him to gain worldwide approval. Because, uh, as we'll see, by the response from the world to the deaths of these two witnesses, they were not, not very well liked. Not only in Israel were they disliked, but they were disliked worldwide. So in the same city where Christ will have walked many years prior to his own crucifixion, the bodies of his two faithful witnesses will lie dead and unburied for three and a half days. 
Now, I think that fact right there, more than anything else, demonstrates the complete inhumanity and degeneration of the people who will be living during the time of the Great Tribulation. I mean, can you imagine how inhumane that is to just let two bodies lie there in the streets? And we're told that the people and the kindreds and the tongues and nations of the world will all see the dead bodies of these two witnesses lying in that street in Jerusalem for a total of three and a half days. Now, for centuries, this part of the prediction about these two witnesses caused many Bible teachers to say that this could not refer to two literal men because there was no way in the world that the entire world could possibly watch their bodies as they lay dead in one street, in one city, in one country of the world. You know, nobody could ever see two bodies worldwide. Neither was there any way that the world could then watch these two prophets come to life again and then ascend up into heaven. Therefore, many Bible teachers interpreted the two prophets to symbolically picture many different things, some of which we've already mentioned. And they went on to say that they could represent the church, or they could represent the church and Israel, or Israel and the Word of God, the Law and the Prophets, the Two Testaments, etc. However, today... Such needless interpretations are no longer necessary since the invention of television and satellites, which now make it possible for us to see televised pictures of events occurring anywhere in the world in just a matter of seconds. And this fact alone, right here, should draw our attention to how close we are to having these events coming to pass. In no other generation. I remember when we got our first television. I'm sure a lot of you do too. And satellites now make it possible, you know, to send pictures worldwide seconds after something occurs. In no other generation could this have been possible. For the whole world to watch two bodies lying in one place. But now, as we know, similar situations occur daily on our news broadcasts around the, the globe. Televised pictures from Jerusalem are regular, regularly transmitted via satellite to such places as New York, Tokyo, Sydney, Australia, uh, London, Moscow, anywhere in the world, Sanford, North Carolina, in literally just seconds. Now, verse 10, verse 10 is an amazing verse to me. Verse 10 tells us how great will be the relief in the world when people everywhere realize that finally someone has been able to kill these two troublemakers. When they view the dead bodies of these sackcloth-dressed Jesus fanatics, which they'll probably be labeled, when they watch their dead bodies on their television screens, there will be great rejoicing and merrymaking among the earth dwellers. It tells us earth dwellers twice in verse 10. Do you remember that speaks of unsaved people? Anytime it speaks about earth dwellers, they're unsaved people. They will make a holiday out of the deaths of these two witnesses. It will kind of like be... Uh, 
like a satanic Christmas, and Christmas is getting more and more pagan as we go, isn't it? But this will be like a satanic Christmas, and people, I just can't imagine this, but people will actually send gifts to one another. They will be so happy that these two witnesses will be dead that they'll send gifts to one another. And I can imagine them going to the card store and buying cards which say, you know, happy dead witnesses day to you and many happy returns. (laughs) It would be, you know, something they would plan on celebrating yearly, make an anniversary out of it. Just incredible. Now, some Bible students have suggested that the two witnesses will have predicted, and this is very possible, that they will have predicted their own deaths and their own resurrections from the dead. Now, how would they be able to do that? They could read Revelation, (laughs) right? And they would know, oh, after three and a half years, we're going to be killed, but don't worry, because we're going to rise in three and a half days. So perhaps they will predict their own resurrections. And these Bible students offer this as the reason for why their bodies won't be buried. You see, their enemies will not want to take any chances of another empty tomb story. So they will insist that the television cameras remain fixed on the bodies so that the whole world will know and see that they will not rise from the dead, as they said, and therefore they will prove themselves to be false prophets. However, the joke will be on them won't it? Can you imagine those cameramen (laughs) when God puts the spirit of life into these two fellas and they stand up on their feet and to the great horror and fear of all who will be watching they will then ascend up into heaven. I imagine when they see life come into them and them stand up, the whole world will think, oh my, what will they do now? You know, if they sent plagues and and drought and turned the waters bloody before, what are they going to do now after we've killed them in revenge? And yet they won't do anything in revenge. They will just ascend up into heaven. Now, adding to their tremendous fear, I love the word affrighted. (laughs) That's a good King James word. It says they were so affrighted. Adding to their fear will be a great and audible voice coming from heaven, which will say to these two resurrected witnesses, come up hither. Aren't those the same words we heard spoken to John back in chapter 4, verse 1? And then, of course, as their enemies around the globe are watching their television screens, they will see these two bodily ascend up to heaven in a cloud. Don't you wish there was a camera fixed on the uh, dome of the rock, the rock underneath, you know, to prove to the world? Or wherever Mohammed was lying, I know he wasn't there. He was somewhere. I wish there was a camera fixed on his body that could have proven to the world that he never ascended into heaven. I also wish there was a camera fixed on Christ when he did. All right, but there weren't TVs in those days. Now, then, as a forewarning of even worse judgment to come, there will be a great earthquake, which occurs, it tells us, within the same hour as the resurrection and the ascension of these two witnesses. And this earthquake here seems to be limited to the city of Jerusalem. I guess it's divine punishment for the horrible treatment of God's two faithful men. One-tenth of the city, we are told, will fall. I imagine that means the buildings. You know, of course, when that happens, many will die. It tells us 7,000 men will die. 
So add that to our figure, you know, of all those who will perish during the tribulation. Now, this cataclysmic judgment of God will follow on the heels of the incredible, visible resurrection and ascension of the two men who had been proclaiming the gospel message to the Jewish people. And all of this put together will result, this is the good news, in the remnant, it tells us, in, uh, let's see, where is it, the end of verse 13, the remnant, and I imagine this to be of the Jews living in Jerusalem, the remnant of the Jews in the city being so affrighted, so terrified, that they will give glory to the God of heaven. Now, this is the first and it is the only time in the book of Revelation where we find people responding positively, spiritually speaking, to a natural disaster or to a disaster. It's not natural. We know it comes from God. It's a supernatural disaster. It's the only time we find men repenting after one of these calamities. And I believe that those who repent here are Jewish people who will recognize the hand of the true God and realize that the message of the two witnesses was indeed the true message of God. And I believe that these people will be the fruit of the witnesses' ministry and of their prayers. Now, not everybody agrees with me here. Commentators are divided on whether this remnant is truly saved or not. They're not certain whether this is belief of true faith or whether it is belief of temporary fear. However, that little phrase where it says giving glory to God has a positive spiritual meaning everywhere else it's used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I give you the scriptures in your notes. So I do believe that this causes the remnant in Israel, in Jerusalem, to be saved. Well, it's at this point that John reminds us that only two of the woe judgments are complete. And there is one yet to come. And it comes with the blowing of the seventh trumpet judgment, which results in the outpouring of the seven bowl judgments. And, you know, we haven't seen anything yet until we see those awful judgments. Well, we are out of time. So I didn't get to verses 15 to 19, which I wasn't thinking I probably would, but they're all in your notes. I will put this part on the cassette tape. So you'll have the whole thing on the tape, and you do have the whole thing in your notes. So now let's look at the second half of the chapter, verses 15 to 19, Worshipful Testimony in Heaven. Starting at verse 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast, and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail." In this section of chapter 11, we're going to consider four subdivisions. 
In verse 15, we will discuss the announcement of the kingdom. In verses 16 to 17, we will listen to the 24 elders' adoration of the king. In verse 18, we will consider the predicted future activities of the king. And then in verse 19, we will take a peek at the ark of the king. As we again peer into heaven, we immediately hear the final presence angel sound the seventh trumpet. However, we will not read about the seven bowl judgments which issue from this seventh trumpet until we get to chapter 16. In the meantime, we will be learning about the tribulation period from a slightly different angle than we have been. In the remaining parenthetical chapters, we will be going back over the same period of time that we've already covered to this point, except we will be formally introduced to the main characters of the tribulation. Naturally, as you would expect, there are seven of them. The woman, the dragon, the male child, Michael, Israel's believing remnant, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. Now before we begin to look at them, however, which we will do in next week's lesson, we have a short but sweet worshipful scene in heaven. As soon as the seventh angel blows the, se the final trumpet, it tells us great voices are heard in heaven, and they make the official announcement that the kingdoms of this world, which have been under the dominion of the god of this world, Satan, since the great garden fall, they are about to change hands. World dominion is about to pass from Satan to the Lord God and his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, of course, will not claim his royal rights until his second coming, but the victory has already been won, and now the final judgment has been sounded. The bold judgments pour out very, very quickly on the earth, and with the final one, the Lord Jesus is in the sky. Not only does this heavenly announcement proclaim the transition of power from Satan to Christ, but it also announces that Christ will reign forever and ever. So this, then, is an announcement which not only predicts his reign over the world, but it goes even further to predict his eternal reign as well. The 1,000-year kingdom merely introduces the eternal kingdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, no sooner do the voices in heaven announce the forthcoming messianic kingdom of Christ than the 24 elders, who we believe represent the church, fall down off their thrones and onto their faces to worship God and give him thanks that he has assumed his sovereign right over the earth. And there are three characteristics of God which are worshipped and recognized here by these elders. They recognize God as the Almighty One, and this speaks of his absolute authority. They speak of God as the one who is and was and is to come. And this speaks of his eternality. He is the beginning and the end, that he lives forever and always has lived. And they speak of him as being the powerful one. And that speaks, of course, of his omnipotence, his great power, which he will need in order to reign the world. The announcement which brought adoration and worship in heaven the announcement regarding the transition of the kingdoms of this world to the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, this stirs up the opposite response among the nations on earth, as we see in verse 18. The stubborn rebellion of unsaved men will continue right down to the bitter end. The nations of the world, which do not at all wish to relinquish to the creator and possessor of the universe all that they have accumulated under Satan's dominion, 
Uh, they will be angry at God for his wrath upon them. Rather than surrendering to his grace and to his mercy and begging him for forgiveness for their prideful rebellion and their rejection of his son, they are going to counsel together to fight against the Lord Jesus' takeover of the world. This anger of the nations, as the Lord gets ready to take that which is rightfully his, is a fulfillment of Psalm 2, which is one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament. In the first three verses of that psalm, the psalmist speaks of the nations and the kings of the earth coming together to counsel as they imagine in vain that they can together launch a rebellion against God and against his rule and his authority over them. However, in verses 4 to 6 of that psalm, we see God sitting up in heaven looking down on these puny, prideful men and laughing at their futile plans. This is much probably how God must have felt when he looked down upon men as they together tried to build a tower to heaven to make a name for themselves. He laughs at the futility of their efforts, which is how he has been viewing the anti-God, anti-Christian nations for thousands of years. But there is soon coming the fulfillment of verse 5 of Psalm 2, which says, Then shall he speak, God speak, unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. This is exactly what we have been looking at in the tribulation judgments of Revelation. Then God will declare to the nations, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And we proceed to learn in that psalm that this king, who he will yet set upon his holy hill, in Jerusalem is none other than his son and he will receive the earth as his inheritance and as his possession and he the son will break the nations with his rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a clay vessel verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2 so the psalm second psalm tells us that the nations will be enraged against God and against his anointed son his anointed king his son and that God's wrath will be poured out against them The warning message of the psalmist himself comes in the final three verses where he says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Well, my advice to anyone who may be in rebellion today against God is the exact same as the psalmist. I beseech you to bow your knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him today with your tongue, your lips, your mouth as your Lord and your Savior. Kiss the Son and do homage to him with a sincere and and humble heart. You will bow before him one day anyway. But it's far better, far better to do so now under his grace than it will be to do so later under his wrath. The wrath we have been studying about in Revelation is when his wrath is kindled just but a little, it tells us. Can you imagine what it will be like in hell? But on the other hand, the psalm ends by saying, Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Well, after the wrath of God breaks loose, there will be a resurrection of the dead and then a judgment of those who are raised, verse 18. 
of chapter 11 tells us. This judgment is a judgment of works for rewards. This is not a judgment of punishment. This is a judgment for works of reward and giving rewards. Those to whom this prediction refers here are the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints who will, at the end of the tribulation, when the Lord returns to establish his kingdom, they will receive their resurrected bodies. Their souls will join with their bodies, and then they will be judged. They will be rewarded, just as the church will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. They will be rewarded at this time for their service. And according to verse 18, first the prophets will be rewarded, then the saints, and most commentators feel this refers to the martyred tribulation saints, and then them that fear thy name, and that's a reference to the Old Testament believers who feared God, but did not yet, of course, know the Lord Jesus Christ. They looked forward to the Messiah coming, but they didn't know him as the Lord Jesus Christ. But they were saved, nonetheless. Now, the rewards that they will receive these Old Testament and Tribulation saints, will probably have to do with ruling and reigning during the Millennial Kingdom with Christ. The Tribulation saints, by the way, who are still alive when the Lord returns, they will not have died. Uh, they will go straight into the Kingdom, the Millennial Kingdom, with their human bodies. Now verse 18 concludes with God's final activity. He will destroy those who have destroyed and corrupted the earth under the leadership of the great destroyer, Satan. This will include, of course, the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of those who worshipped the beast. The devil, Satan himself, will be cast into the bottomless pit to be confined during the 1,000-year uh, reign of Christ on earth. And the Antichrist and the false prophet will become the first occupants of the eternal lake of fire, and they will be cast there at the time of the Lord's second coming. And after the millennial kingdom is over, and there is a short-lived final rebellion by Satan, he will then join the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire for all of eternity and that will be the end praise the Lord of Satan well the ark of the king is the last thing mentioned here in verse 19 this verse should actually form the introduction to chapter 12 because it begins an entirely new prophecy which will continue on through chapter 14 this is the prophecy which will introduce us to the seven main characters other than God, who we've, of course, already met. Seven main characters of the tribulation period. This prophecy is one which is primarily related to the nation of Israel. And we are clued to knowing that this is um, regarding the nation of Israel. We're clued to this fact by the mentioning of both the Ark of the Covenant, which is uh, here called the Ark of His Testament, and the Temple of God in this verse. The first thing we notice in verse 19 is that the temple of God was opened in heaven. Have you noticed that the book of Revelation is the book of openings? It's the book of unveiling things, the book of revealing things, or the book of openings, we could say. We've had seven great openings, or we will have by the time we're through with this study. Seven great openings in Revelation, which aren't open anywhere else in the scripture. We saw a door in heaven open in chapter 4, verse 1. We saw the seven seals are open in chapter 6 through 8. Uh, the bottomless pit is open, 9, 2. The temple of God in heaven is open, 
11:19, what we have right here. Then we will see that the tabernacle of the testimony will be open in chapter 15, verse 5, that heaven is open in 19:11, and that the books of judgment will be open in chapter 12, uh, 20, verse 12. And notice, too, how chapter 11 opened with the temple on earth, and now it closes with the temple opened in heaven. Very interesting. There is a heavenly temple after which the tabernacle and all the Jewish temples have been patterned. The author of the book of Hebrews refers to the tabernacle and its ministries and its functions as patterns of things in the heavens. The whole earthly worship system which was given by God to Moses was copied after the heavenly. Sin, of course, has marred the worship upon the earth so that the two are no longer the same. The temple on earth has been desecrated. Uh, It's not only been desecrated by the Jews themselves, you can read about that in Ezekiel, but also by Antiochus Epiphanes, as we talked about earlier. And it will be desecrated again by the Antichrist. It was also left desolate without God's presence. However, the temple in heaven has never and will never be desecrated or left desolate. Well, John sees an amazing thing. He sees the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple where God himself dwells, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant, which was the most sacred aspect of the temple. For this was where God communed and met with his people above the mercy seat which covered the Ark. Inside the ark, of course, was a pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the two tablets of God's law, the Ten Commandments. Well, this ark is mentioned in order to remind us that God's covenants with Israel will never fail. God wants everyone who reads the book of Revelation to remember this truth, that even in the midst of his judgments and his outpourings of wrath and the horrible persecution and the purging which will be occurring in Israel, Uh, He will be allowing the Antichrist to come in and to abominate the temple. He will be allowing the Gentiles to trod them underfoot. Yet, his promises to her will be kept. He wants us to keep this in mind as we go to the next verses, which open up chapter 12, because God's covenant nation will come into view in that chapter, which, Lord willing, we will look at next week. Well, in the midst of his look at the Ark of the Covenant in the heavenly temple, John then hears lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. The opening of the heavenly temple and the displaying of the Ark, which in the Old Testament was always closed and concealed, signifies that God is about to act on behalf of Israel. For the Ark of the Covenant stood for Israel in every way. It stood for her law. It stood for her land. It stood for her Lord, and it stood for her light. God is a covenant-keeping God. He will fulfill every covenant he made with Israel. She will receive the land that he promised. She will receive the king that he promised her. She will receive the new covenant he promised her. The law will be written in the hearts of the people instead of on cold tablets of stone. He will keep every promise he has ever made to her. After her purging in the fires of the tribulation, Israel will accept the Lord Jesus Christ at his return, and she will be saved. However, the lightnings and voices and thunders and earthquake and great hail speak of judgment, which is still to come before she is ready to repent. Upon the ark, remember, was the mercy seat, a reminder that even in the midst of the worst judgment, 
God will remember mercy to the one who calls out to him. So the stage is set for the dramatic appearance of five main characters of the last days. The woman, the dragon, the male child, Michael, who represents the holy angels, and the believing remnant of Israel. Those five characters will be presented to us in chapter 12. There will be two more after that, but they will come in chapter 13.